It is so good to be together on the Lord's Day. I'm so glad to see each one of you here this morning. God bless you. And uh, I would say we're already blessed just by getting to be here and worship together. Uh, It is a wonderful opportunity that we have together. So thank you for your presence this morning. Thank you for participating uh, with one another in worship. And uh, I'll say to those that are joining us online, thank you as well. And my prayer is that if you uh, are able, that you'll be with us here in person uh, in the not too distant future. I want to invite you as we begin this morning, we just read from Romans chapter 8, and that's where we're going to take our lesson from. But I want to back up just a little bit to Romans chapter 3. And while you're turning there, uh, I would love to uh, ask you to just imagine uh, a scenario with me for, for just a moment. Imagine that you've been accused of a serious crime that you didn't commit. You've gone through the trial. You've heard evidence from the prosecution and, and your defense team. And uh, you finally reach the point that the jury is ready to, to hand over their verdict. And you're really not sure how it's going to go. You know that uh, you're innocent, but uh, you don't know how this is going to turn out based on what you've observed through the trial. But your future depends on what you're about to hear from the jury. Now imagine the relief that would sweep over you when you heard, if you heard those words, not guilty. Now let's change the scene just a little bit. You did commit the crime that you're accused of. You know you're guilty. Everyone knows that you're guilty. And, and just as the sentence is about to be handed down, your defense attorney stands up and says, I'll take his place. Or I'll take her place. I'm willing to suffer the punishment that that they deserve and allow them to go free. And as the judge unbelievably agrees, you're overwhelmed with relief. Because you know that you're guilty. Everyone knows that you're guilty. Yet, you stand there uncondemned. That's an illustration that I hope may be able to may be able to help us visualize what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's something that Paul talks about in Romans chapter three. We're gonna again we're gonna spend most of our time this morning in Romans eight, but I want to back up here to Romans chapter three for just a minute because he begins, as you know, in verse twenty three: "For all have sinned." And fall short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty of sin. But then he says, verse 24, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. All of us, we are of an age where we are accountable 
know that we, we have done wrong. We are guilty of sin. But all of us might be, and all of us who are in Christ Jesus have been justified. We've been counted as though we are righteous. Our sins have been forgiven because Christ Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now that word, we usually don't use it outside of a Bible study context. We don't, we don't talk about propitiation in our everyday Discussions, but it is a term we find a number of times in Scripture, and 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 it's 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 general meaning the way it would have been used among the the, the common Greeks of that day is to refer to a sacrifice they might make in an attempt to either curry the favor of the gods or to appease the wrath. Of the God. So, so picture yourself living in the first century Greco Roman world. Maybe you live in a small village and your crops have not done well for three or four years. You might offer a propitiation sacrifice to the gods to either turn away their wrath by which they're, as you would believe, causing your crops to fail or to gain their favor so that your crops may succeed. That's the idea. That's behind that word propitiation. It's appeasing the gods in the, in, in the minds of a first century Greek person. The difference when it's used in the New Testament, first of all, there's only one God. And that one God did this Himself. He offered the sacrifice. He gave Himself Right? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. He gave Himself to be the sacrifice that we might be forgiven of our sins. That we would no longer be subject to the righteous wrath of God. And that's what Paul and other writers mean when they speak of Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. And it's because of that propitiation, because of that sacrifice that Paul can say in Romans 8 and verse 1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in Christ. And that's what I want us to think about this morning as we look through Romans chapter 8, those first 11 verses together. And it begins with deliverance. In verses 1 and 4, listen to what Paul writes. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Anyone who is in Christ has been delivered, has been set free from the law of sin and death, and there is no condemnation for such a one. If you go back to the previous chapter, in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about his own struggle with the law of sin and death. Going back to verse 13 
of Romans chapter 7. Listen to what Paul says. He says, did that which is good, he's talking about the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. And so, so now it's, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, but, but not, for, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul is pleading almost. Uh, about his spiritual situation. He says in verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How many of us feel that in our own lives? We know what's right. We know what's good. But yet again and again we fail to do. I I know I, I feel that every time I read it. Verse 20, Now if I do... What I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And that goes straight into our passage in Romans 8. Now some people think Paul is is talking about his situation before he was converted. Others believe that he's recognizing the reality that even as a Christian... There are daily battles against temptation and sin. Battles that even though we try, we don't always win. Now, I don't I I won't uh, uh, dispute with anybody who thinks the former, but I kind of lean towards the latter, because as I said, reading verse 19, I feel that every day that I know what I want to do. I want to do the things that are pleasing to God. I want to do what I know is right, but I don't always do it. I don't always do what I know is good. And I feel like Paul, a wretched man that I am, who will save me, deliver me from this body of death. And then there's the answer in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I know, I know that when I fight these battles, I know that when you fight these battles with temptation, we don't always win. But in Christ, there is hope. Because even when we lose those battles, Christ has already won the war. If we continue to fight on His side, if we continue to follow Him, we have the assurance of that victory. But because of the weakness of the flesh, we still do what we don't want to do. But in Christ, we have assurance that we've been set free. You know, that was something that didn't happen 
under the Mosaic Covenant. That's something that didn't happen before Christ came. Yes, there were sacrifices for sin. Yes, there was atonement that was made once a year uh, on that special day that we read about in Leviticus chapter 16. But it was not the final solution that God provided for for our hope and for for our our salvation. Turn over to Hebrews 10 with me for just a moment. Uh, Put a a marker or put a a finger there in Romans chapter 8 because we're going to come back to that. But in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews kind of lays out uh, what what Paul was talking about, how the, the Mosaic Covenant could not do. It wasn't designed to do. What was done in Christ? Going to Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year because for it says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We're going to skip down a little bit to verse 11 and see what he says there. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. We just read that in the first four verses. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because His work in that regard was completed. The priests stand continually offering those sacrifices. Jesus offered one sacrifice and then He sat down. In verse 13, He's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant, under the law, it's, it said it in verse 3, They are, or rather verse 2, or no, I guess it's verse 1. I'm, I'm trying to read this uh, quickly here. Um, they, they, they cannot... By those sacrifices that are offered every year continuously. Make one perfect. But Christ, verse 14, by a single sacrifice has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus accomplished what the sacrifices of that old covenant could not. He set us free from the law of sin and death. He set us free from that that continuous cycle of of, of sin and, and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and continuously doing the same thing and it never really changing. He set us free. And yes, physical death is still on the horizon for each one of us. It's something, it's a threshold all of us must cross. But eternal life awaits those of us who have been set free in Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice there in Romans 8 and verse 4 as we get into the next section that this promise is only for those who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. And so, so there's a decision that has to be made. 
Verses 5 through 8, Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the minds on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is similar to something we've said multiple times in different lessons already this year, the past couple of months. It it comes back to a question of focus. I'm of the opinion, and I hope you'll agree with me, I'm of the opinion that all of us who are Christians in this modern age, and I'm including myself in this, we need, to, we, we need to regularly sit down and do some serious thinking and some serious praying about where our focus is while we're here in this world. Because there's a lot of things in this world, things that... Maybe in and of themselves are not sinful, but things that are competing for our attention. And Satan will use these things to draw our focus away from the more important spiritual matters if we are not careful. We can let him pull us straight away from God through things which in and of themselves may not be wrong. But if we give them our focus over God, then they become sinful. So our, our, our primary focus cannot be on worldly things. That's not good. Because one thing that's going to happen is our focus is ultimately going to determine our behavior. And you know what's going to happen if your focus is on that which is worldly? Guess what's going to happen to your behavior? It's going to be worldly too. And if our behavior is worldly, then we're living in hostility to God. We can't please God. So focus on the things of the Spirit so that, as Paul says in Galatians 5, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In fact, let's go over there to Galatians 5 real quick. (coughs) Excuse me. Galatians 5, we'll start in about verse 16 and go through the rest of that, most of the rest of that chapter. Probably a familiar passage to many, but let's pay careful attention to it. Even if we, even if we think we know it, let's pay careful attention to what Paul says. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, uh, uh, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Walk by the Spirit. Let your focus be on spiritual things and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And pay, pay careful attention to those works of the flesh. Some of them we look at them and we're like, oh yeah, that's bad. Sexual immorality, um, um, idolatry, those kind of things. Yeah, we'll sit here all day long and say, yeah, that's bad. That's awful. You shouldn't do that. How many of us, because we're maybe more worldly focused than we ought to be, give in to strife, enmity, jealousy, fits of anger? How many of us give in to these things on a daily basis sometimes? Because we're more worldly focused than spiritually focused. But on the other hand, if we're walking by the Spirit, if we're setting our our minds, our focus on things above and not the things of the earth, then these things, this, this fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, that'll be much more evident in our lives. And those are good things. Against such things, there is no law. And so we focus on spiritual things and not worldly things so that we might walk in the fruit of the Spirit. And if we're in Christ, if we're in Christ, we we already have His Spirit dwelling within us. That's all the more reason for our focus to be spiritual rather than than fleshly. And so we speak of a, a dwelling. A dwelling talking about something or someone Taking up residence. Not, not just staying for a temporary period of time, but this, this is where they live. And the Apostle says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ, uh, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now in that first, in that first part in verse 9, and really throughout, Paul is not questioning whether or not those to whom he is writing have the Spirit. Instead, he's he's drawing our attention to the fact that anyone who is in Christ Jesus already has the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Peter promised those who heard him speak at Pentecost. In Acts 2 and verse 38, we, we know the first part of that verse. I know, repent and let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Do you know the last part? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spirit And later, those same apostles, Peter included, when they were before the council of, of the Jewish leadership, and they, they said to them, they spoke of the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Acts 5 and verse 32. Now this is not the same thing as the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Things like prophecy 
speaking in tongues. Matt's going to cover that for us next Sunday in Bible class. He's going to do an excellent job. And I mean that sincerely. Um, that's not what we're talking about when we say the gift of the Spirit in Acts 2 and verse 38. When we talk about the Spirit being given to those who obey Him, that's not what we're talking about. Some did receive the Spirit in that way, but not all. But all Christians, when we are obedient to the Gospel, are given the gift of the Spirit Himself dwelling within us. Paul told us several times in 1 Corinthians that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He said that of the church collectively. He said that of individual Christians. That we are a temple of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So there's no question if you're a child of God, God's Spirit is dwelling within you. All the more reason our focus should be on spiritual things. Verse 10 talks about what God is doing in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our physical bodies, you might say, are as good as dead because one day we're going to die because Adam sinned and brought physical death into this world. I have that to the fact that we've, all, we've also sinned, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All deserve, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 and verse 23, all deserve that punishment because of our sins. But in Christ, through the Spirit that dwells in us, He says we are alive. And though the physical body will die, our spirit, that eternal part of, of ourselves will live on. And it will wait that day when the dead in Christ will be raised. All the saints, all the Christians from all generations will meet the Lord in the air. Thus to always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17. And it's that that Paul brings our attention to as, as we get to the last verse in verse 11. That God will do this for the one in whom the Spirit dwells. Later, he tells us in Ephesians 1 that the Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. Our inheritance in the eternal kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world. Our, our promise of being with the Lord in heaven. The Spirit gives us the guarantee of that. One of the many blessings of being in Christ, if you want to read through Ephesians chapter 1. But it's more than just promise that our spirit will live on. It's a promise of resurrection in that last day. Jesus talks about in John 6 and verse 40 about raising up those who believe in Him on the last day. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, really verse 50 and following, talks about our perishable putting on the imperishable, the mortal putting on immortality, us being raised up to a, a, a new body, a spiritual body, but a body nonetheless. Never to die again. Where we will be with the Lord forever. And so, we ought to be able to live with confidence knowing that God's Spirit is dwelling within us. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you don't hear anything else that I've said this morning, 
If you don't remember anything else that we've studied this morning, remember those words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is Romans 8 and verse 1. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. If you you have to, underline it, highlight it. If you do that, memorize it. Write it on an index card. Put it somewhere in your home. Put it by the bathroom mirror. Or put it on the fridge. Somewhere you'll see it every day. And be reminded that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't forget that. And with that in mind, we can live without fear. We can live with confident assurance of our salvation. That if we are in Christ Jesus, if we're following Him faithfully, if we're we're remaining faithful to Him, not rejecting Him, not openly disobeying Him, yes, we will make mistakes, but that's that's where His wonderful intercession comes into play. Yes, we will make mistakes, but as long as we are walking in the light, as He is in the light, striving to do what is pleasing to Him, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want everyone, this is my my, my desire, I want everyone to have that assurance. And when I say everyone, I I, I mean, I'm kind of like Paul. If I could, I would make sure everybody in the whole world had that assurance. I don't have that kind of, kind of reach. But I, I, I do see people stand, sitting in front of me this morning. I see some, I, I see Christians. I see those maybe that, that, that are not yet Christians. I want you to have the assurance that your faith, that, that, that your, your, your salvation is in Christ Jesus and there is no condemnation in Christ. If you don't have that assurance this morning, make sure that you do. Make sure that you, you have it before you leave. If we, we need to help you in any way with that, we would love to assist this morning, whatever the need may be. But make sure you have the assurance that you're not condemned. If you, if you, if, if you were to stand before the Lord today, you would not receive condemnation. If you need that assurance this morning, We're going to sing a song of encouragement, a song of invitation. Come to the front. Let us know how we can assist you in knowing, knowing that your salvation is assured in Christ Jesus. We can do that this morning. Come while we stand and we sing together.